Dear Sheila, The peace-type silver dollar was first made in 1921 to celebrate the end of the war and in hope that there would never be another one and that the eagle's wings could remain folded. Sadly, they haven't. The coin has little intrinsic value. It is to convey good luck and hope for a commitment to peace and nonviolence. I wish you the best. T.J.B. So what happened to the East Bay girls? Between the years of 1979 and 1991, there were a string of child abductions in the East Bay area of Northern California. Many of these abductions that we're going to talk about in this episode were connected by a man named Timothy J. Bender, who was never charged for any of the crimes, but always happened to be close by. Strange, right? Strange indeed. A man who drove around a van plastered with missing children's posters and a license plate that said, Love You. Did I mention it was a van? This is just the tip of the iceberg. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained. I'm your host, Michael, and I want to personally thank you for listening. So in case you didn't notice, the letter that I read at the beginning was actually written by Timothy J. Bender on May 23rd in 1991. He sent it to the house of Liz Cosgrove, and the letter was addressed to her 12-year-old daughter. The letter was even written backwards, so it had to be held up to a mirror to read it, and it also contained two small coins, an Indian head penny and a silver dollar. These letters were unusual, as Liz did not know who they were coming from or why they were sent to Sheila. Two more letters would arrive later on, and Liz would eventually hire a private investigator to find out where they came from. She had tried to get the police involved, but they told her it was not a crime to send a letter to someone, no matter how creepy it was. Here is letter number two. It read, Quote, Dear Sheila, you can read this if you stand on your head and climb through the mirror. This would be a good way to begin a day, don't you think? The peace dollar was a hope, and the Indian penny is always a wish for good luck. If you or your parents want to ask me anything, please write like this. Otherwise, I might have to stand on my head and climb through the mirror to read it. I dare not send you a hug and a kiss. So instead, I send you one-third of a hug and two millionth of a kiss and thirteen dodecillion dreams. Your friend, Tim. So, in the second, in the third, I'm sorry, in the second letter, he chose to use his name, Tim. In the first one, he used his initials, which were, which are TJB. In the third letter, 
in my opinion, just got, it just went over the top creepy. So it starts with a Bible verse. First John goes like this. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Then there was a poem attached beneath the verse that read, Never seek to tell thy love that never told can be, for the gentle breeze ever moves silently, invisibly. I love you, Sheila. So luckily Sheila was not part of the unfortunate East Bay girls. However, she may have just eluded her capture. It turns out the letters were from a man in Richmond, California, and his name was Timothy Bender. In 1985, he was fired from his job at the Social Security Administration for collecting the addresses, birth dates, and Social Security numbers of little girls in Colorado. He had sent each girl a $50 gift card on their 14th birthday, totaling about $2,000 out of his own pocket. That is creepy. He has no relation to any of these girls. They're just random girls. But one thing that they did notice was that a lot of the girls that he was sending money to, either them girls themselves or their mothers, experienced some sort of trauma, like maybe lost their significant other or lost their mother or father recently or a brother or sister or someone close to them, they had went through some sort of tragedy, which Bender would have been aware of working at the Social Security office. He claimed that a game show that gave away money to unsuspecting people had motivated his actions, and he just wanted to surprise the girls with a nice gift. And no one, including local authorities, could prove otherwise. So eventually, he was reinstated after a 16-month investigation that found he had not used the information for, quote, personal gain, and so he had broken no rules or laws. Over the years, Bender held many odd jobs, including working at a crematorium. He also tried many times to pass a firefighter's exam without success. Now, when I learned this, it took me by surprise. Because I feel like this is a big strike in the uh, Bender is innocent category, but maybe just psychologically disturbed a little bit. I believe Bender has what would be classified as a savior complex, which is a psychological construct that makes a person feel the need to save other people. This person would have a strong tendency to seek people who desperately need help and to assist them often sacrificing their own needs for these people. Now, let me get this straight. I'm not trying to give Bender a free pass right off the bat. I'm just saying that I do believe he had this savior complex. But that does not mean that he wouldn't purposely put someone in harm's way to publicly save them. So after the police tried to call Bender to question him about the letters to Cosgrove, he sent her another letter, which read as follows, quote, Dear Miss Sheila, the cops called, 
but I don't know why. I wasn't here. I wish you or your parents had called, so I could have explained. Plus, got to know them. Anyways, I could never do harm to a child. The coins were meant for you to keep for good luck. I am not a threat to you, and never will be. God is love. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.11 My love to you all, Tim. End quote. And then he included another poem. For a child or two, a fresh cool breeze, or mystery gifts that come in threes, the view after climbing to a mountaintop and knowing that love will never stop. A heart that can cry, yet be strong and bold, while reaching out for a hand to hold. I wish you the best as I sign goodbye. I may not have touched, but I sure did try. To Sheila, from a friend. Creepy. Right? Whether your intentions are good or bad, how could you ever think that this is a good idea? Now this guy was no idiot. This guy was well-educated. He was a Berkeley graduate. He was no fool. But why would he do this? And Sheila Cosgrove was not the only girl to receive these gifts and letters. Bender was on the police radar for years by the time Sheila received her first letter. He first came under scrutiny during the investigation into a five-year-old Angela Bouquet's abduction in November of 1983. Angela's body would eventually be found, and it was clear that she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Angela's killer was eventually identified as her mother's ex-boyfriend, Larry Graham. He committed suicide in prison after receiving the death penalty. But before Graham was named the killer, Bender was in the spotlight because of his deep interest in Angela's case. He was seen visiting her gravesite up to 90 different times, in a single year. So it's clear to see why Bender was under such suspicion. But did that make him guilty? DNA evidence matched her stepfather to the crime. Bender was nowhere around. Other than going to her grave, he had no other connection to this girl. Maybe he saw her. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he knew, maybe he was sending letters to her. Maybe he had a feeling that something bad was happening. Or maybe he's connected to these kidnappings in a different way. So the first of the missing East Bay girls to go missing was June 6th, 1979. This is when 12-year-old Tara Cossie disappeared while going to the local store to buy sugar. There is very little on Tara's disappearance and there has never been anyone linked to her case, although Bender became a suspect later on. The next time Bender's motives were called into question was during June of 1988, when seven-year-old Amber Schwartz went missing from her front yard. This is from an interview Amber's mom did in 1993. Uh, That day, Amber was wearing purple cords, a white short-sleeved t-shirt with teal-colored bands around these sleeves, and the bottom of the shirt with multicolored pictures of sunglasses on the front, pink socks and uh, white and pink alligator tennis shoes. Um, 
It was approximately 4.15 on June 3, 1988, when Amber went out to jump rope in the front yard. Uh, approximately 4.30 when I went out to check on her, she was gone. Um, 15 minutes later. Correct. So just three days after Amber disappeared, Bender shows up at Amber's house and became emotional while talking to Amber's mother, Kim. They'd never met him, ever. Had no idea this man existed. Pulls up in front of her house, knocks on the door, and basically in tears, expresses how sorry he is for for her losing her daughter. And naturally, Kim became very uneasy because she noticed Bender's van which, like I mentioned in the intro, was covered in posters of missing children, and a lot of which were posters of Amber. And he had a vanity plate that said, Love you. L-O-V-Y-O-U. He also made a lot of strange statements in a way that it makes it puzzles me as to why you would say these things to parents if you weren't a little bit sadistic. For instance, to Kim, he said, quote, Of course, now we are looking for a dead body. And at that point, Kim asked Bender to leave. Bender was questioned extensively and even given a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. Police also asked Kim Schwartz, who is Amber's mother, to, quote, befriend Bender in hopes that he would slip up and give some kind of incriminating evidence. Kim did as the police asked, but instead of getting any closer to finding her daughter, she just became more frightened by the man. Bender would call and leave odd voicemails for Schwartz and suggest books, one being the classic Crime and Punishment which, if you're not familiar, was the story of a suspect that got involved in the investigation and befriended the family of his victim. Creepy. See, if he's trying to do good, and he is, just have this Samaritan complex or this savior complex or whatever you want to call it, why go about it this way? It just seems so strange to me. Kim Swartz believed that this was Bender's way of toying with her. Whether he not whether or not he took Amber, he definitely is guilty of impeding an investigation. Bender was known to search for missing children on his own. He covered his van in pictures of young girls and Bible verses. And also he had crayon drawings as well. Something I haven't mentioned earlier just came to mind. That just it's just the it's a van, right? It's a van first off. You're a single person. You don't have a family riding around in this van. And it's just plastered with missing kids. Maybe he thought, I want to drive around a moving billboard. And a van has the most surface area so I can spread awareness for the most kids. Right? I don't know. But it's no wonder Bender looks suspicious. But was he really a predator? Was he just really a concerned citizen? Or maybe just odd? It, we, we don't know. But we do know that there was never any concrete evidence. And 
he was never charged for anything. And the case went pretty cold until 2007 when known serial killer Curtis Dean Anderson confessed to killing Amber. However, Dean was never physically connected to Amber Schwartz and Amber's mother petitioned the police to reopen her case in 2013. And to this day, it still remains unsolved. Amber's mother strongly believes that Dean just wanted to take a trip to Starbucks or to go out and get ice cream or, or whatever kind of rights are permitted to criminals who are um, confessing to crimes. Maybe he just wanted to get off his cell block for a day. Either way, Curtis Dean Anderson is not our man in this case. So it remained unsolved. But then just five, min five months after Amber disappeared, the area was rocked with another kidnapping. On November 1988, nine-year-old Michaela Garrick vanished from a Hayward market after riding to get candy and soda with a friend. When the girls went into the store, they placed their scooters near the side of the store. When the girls came back out of the store, Michaela's scooter had been moved next to a car in the parking lot. And when she went over there to pick it up, Michaela was grabbed and shoved into the car and it sped off before her friend could return with help. There were several suspects in Michaela's case, but no one was ever convicted. Bender had been in the area, but of course, Bender was always in the area. He lived in the area, but could in no way, shape, or form be linked to this crime. Mainly because this crime had an eyewitness. Michaela's friend. She gave a description of a tall, long, blonde-haired man with a pockmarked face that drove a tan GM model four-door sedan, which Bender drove a light blue minivan. So Michaela was never seen or heard from again, and her case still remains unsolved to this day. Even with her friend seeing the man right there in front of her, but at nine years old, I'm sure it was hard for her to grasp what was going on, much less gather details. And it seemed as though Michaela's case went cold as quick as she was taken. Then in January of 1989, tragedy struck again when 13-year-old Eileen Mischelhoff vanished on her way home in Dublin, California. She had planned to go to the nearby ice skating rink as she was an avid ice skater, but she never showed up. There was a massive search effort, and again a familiar Timothy Bender showed up to help look for Eileen. The only thing the police ever found in reference to Eileen was her backpack near a creek bed, although it seemed to be, have been placed there after the area had already been searched. And that's the last we hear of Eileen. Now, two years after this, in May of 91, is when Sheila Cosgrove received her first letter, which you heard at the beginning of the episode, from Bender. Nothing ever came of the letters, as the local DA's office determined Bender was breaking no laws. And again, nothing sexual or threatening in the letters. 
However, after receiving calls from the police, Bender would finally stop writing Sheila. Then in December of 91, just months later, four-year-old Nikki Campbell disappears just a quarter of a mile from Cosgrove's house. She had went down the street to a friend's house and knew the area well, so when her mother could not find her, she knew something was wrong. Welcome back. Joining us now are Anne and Jim Campbell, searching parents of Amanda Nikki Campbell. Uh, she was four years old, about five and a half, um, about three feet tall. She'll be five and a half now. She was three feet six inches tall then, 65 pounds. She was wearing a pink jacket, a purple top, purple pants. She had long blonde hair, probably in a ponytail, with bangs. Uh, she has a big smile, great big smile, big dimples. Now, her hair may have changed. She may be a different height now, because she's five and a half now. And she could have, they could have cut her hair, colored it. Um, they, can, they can change her, you know, in a number of ways. She's grown over a year now. No, she's on, yes. Now, take me back to that day and tell me a little bit about what happened on December 27, 1991. Um, I came home from work finding my 16-year-old at the garage door telling me that Jim was unable to locate Nikki. I proceeded to go to her friend's house that she was allowed to go to, unable to contact and get a hold of Nikki, and I came back home met, meeting Sheila's daddy at my driveway. He said, let's go call the police. And when we got there, my 16-year-old said, Mom, I've already called the police. They immediately came out and did a door-to-door -door search until 1 in the morning, still unable to locate Amanda. And um, they came back the next morning and started the search over again at 6 a.m. So they searched for two days, door-to-door, -door, asking everybody. They searched actually three days. Three they days? Did they did it uh, Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, they also did a helicopter search, is that They right? did a helicopter search. Mm -hmm. They also did, um, they brought the dogs in, which carried the scent of my daughter and also the scent of her and a vehicle. And what did the dogs find? The dogs um, led them that she was taken out of the neighborhood to the nearest McDonald's and onto I-80 West, which is exactly 90 seconds from my front door. And after that, the trail disappeared? Yeah, after that, the trail, yes, because they cannot take the dogs on the freeway. The only thing they eventually find of Nikki's is her bicycle, which was in the driveway of a house down the street. But the house that it was at, the people were out of town on vacation and hadn't been there for days. So it's also interesting to note that the bloodhounds that she was speaking about, they trace Nikki's trail to the grave of Angela Bugay. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's the grave that I mentioned earlier that Bender visited 90 times. So other than being in the area, why was ben Bender being targeted by police? Because the scent dogs, they don't hold a lot of weight in California, especially not in the early 90s. So why were they targeting Bender? Well, it's not like he made a great effort to make himself look innocent. Before Nikki disappeared... Bender sent a postcard to the FBI offices with a girl holding up four fingers. And Nikki was four years old. He had also done this once before, just before nine-year-old Michaela Gorecht disappeared. The girl at the supermarket with the scooter. He made a prediction that the next girl to be taken would be nine. 
Now, to be clear, all of the evidence stacked against Bender to this day is just circumstantial. And again, he was never charged with any of these crimes. But even though he may not be the one who took these curls, he actually didn't do much to help them either. He showed up as a concerned citizen looking to help, but then relished in the attention he got when he became a suspect. In 1992, he was named the main suspect in Nikki Campbell's disappearance. His home was searched, but nothing was found. And Bender late, later sued the city of Fairfield for defamation and received $90,000 in the settlement. And in 1997, John Philpin wrote a book called Stalemate, which included over 200 hours of interviews with Timothy Bender, in which he gave disturbing theories on how the killer may have disposed of the girls. However, it is interesting to note that during 79 to 91, when the girls went missing, there was anywhere from 6 to 10 different active serial killers slash child abductors slash killer couples in the area, including convicted killer Curtis Dean Anderson, James DeVaggio and girlfriend Michelle Mashad, who were known to, quote, hunt young women to kidnap and torture, also convicted serial killer Philip Joseph Hughes Jr., who was known to kidnap and murder young women in the same area. Then there was Philip and Nancy Garrido, who are most known for kidnapping and keeping J.C. DeGard for almost 20 years. And that's just to name a few. So was all the effort spent on Timothy Bender just a waste of resources? They could have been spent to find the real killer? Or is Timothy Bender just one step too far in front of law enforcement to get caught? It's a weird case. I'm not really sure where I stand with this. I'm not really sure where I stand with Bender. It is odd that the scent dogs track Nikki's scent to a grave that he visited all the time. Um, and then it is also odd that it that they then track the scent to a McDonald's. I forgot to mention that earlier, but that just occurred to me. After they, after the dogs tracked the scent to the grave, then they went to a local McDonald's, which seems like something a child abductor would do, right? To put a, a child at ease, get him a Happy Meal, maybe an ice cream cone, build a little trust. It just seems creepy to me, and it seems like something Bender might have done. Either way, I know what we can do. Let's check in with Lorne. Let's see what he thinks on Lorne's synopsis. It's time for Lorne. It's time for Lorne's synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lorne. It's time for Lawrence Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lawrence. It's time for Lawrence Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained, the Bay Area child abductions from 1983 to 1991, um, which brought to light 
one hell of a suspect that the police, I'm sure, wish they had enough to put away for good in Timothy Binder. This guy was a world-class creep. His past was creepy, being fired from the Social Security Administration after using their systems to send money to young girls he didn't know, then going on to have a creep van that was searched by police and found to have pictures of young girls that he didn't know, names of young girls written in crayon, um, as well as the scent um, that a bloodhound was able to uh, connect the scent in his van to Amber Schwartz, who was known to be abducted and who he had interjected himself in the investigation of. He should have been arrested just for the fear, mere fact that he was hampering an investigation um, by constantly going to the families and saying that he was looking for their daughters when he had no business doing so. And also by trying going to the police and saying he was helping them. Um, hanging out at the grave of a five-year-old girl, Angela, who was murdered, um, pre- sending letters and, and predicting. He was at one point predicted the age of the next girl that would be abducted and was actually correct on that. There's just so many things that, so much circumstantial evidence. I understand they didn't have the bodies. They didn't have the DNA. Um, however, they just had a scent in his van, which to me is enough to say he did it. Um, but not enough to hold up in a trial and get him convicted. And the fact that he went on to sue the city on a defamation claim and actually acquired $90,000 and, uh, and, and then went on to interrupt another trial, a murder trial he had nothing to do with where a father had, uh, strangled his son and he gets on the jury and almost causes a mistrial when, they, when the court finally finds out his history of being involved and being a main suspect in all of these child abductions. The guy is a world-class scumbag, a world-class creep. I wish he was in prison. Um, and I would say I'm about 90% sure that he was behind at least a few of these abductions, um, and if if not more. Um, so, yeah, that's my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. hope you guys enjoyed it, and I will see you next time. All right, Lauren, thanks for that. Also, totally forgot that at another time, the scent dogs did track Amber Schwartz's scent to his van. Now, that could very well been just the fact how, you know, he visited Kim Schwartz a lot, Amber's mother. He was at their house. I mean, I feel like he was there and around her because there was that time when she was trying to befriend him. So maybe some of that scent got rubbed off there. You know, you know how you you smell someone else's clothes and it just smells like their laundry detergent and it's easy to get that smell, especially for a bloodhound. I don't know. I'm I'm totally spitballing here. Um but yeah, Lauren brings up some great points. Uh definitely painted Bender in a much darker light. So, that's why I have him here. Gain another type of perspective. Um, we do not study the case together uh, on purpose. I study, he studies, we come up with different aspects of it sometimes. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not so sure that Bender is connected directly, but maybe maybe in another way. I, I don't I'm not really sure. But it is strange that scent dogs did track two of the missing girls since back to places he had been or his van in particular. 
Very strange. Also strange to me that the state of California uh, back then did not hold that in higher regard. That That is what really puzzles me. Um, but also going on in 93, not, this is not, uh, too much of a stretch. This is not too much, uh, of a change of subject, but I, I found this in my research and I actually wanted to play this clip. Uh, this clip is from, is, uh, Dr. Tom Philpot. He used to be a professor at the university of Texas and he is describing this underground boys ring all the victims that we talked about in this episode were girls but there's also something very dark uh if you know anything about johnny gosh um in true crime guys my our other podcast that i do with lauren lauren is the host of that podcast i'm kind of the co-host and we did an episode on johnny gosh and if you haven't looked into that johnny gosh opens your eyes to this whole underworld of child trafficking and this man touched on it in a way that that made it very real because this was much closer to the time when Johnny had went missing this was in 93 so after Johnny but still this was still well well established organizations that were doing this and it was still going on at this time it's still going on now let's let's be real but this just really hit me hard um, because of how long this has been going on and how much we know and how powerless we seem to be to stop it. And I think the only thing we can do is spread awareness. So here's that interview. President's uh, Commission on Obscenity found, this is the commission that Richard Nixon repudiated. It mentioned in passing that child pornography was a phenomenon of the abuse of children and then went on to say that for every female prostitute of any age in the United States there are nine boys underage who are prostitutes and there was a call boy ring operated out of New York City which had phone hookups with Houston, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Washington DC and that call boy ring had a list of 10,000 clients who could call and with a credit card purchase a boy. Hello? Hello, uh, this is uh, credit card number 06789. Uh, I'd like to make an order, please. Go ahead. I'm looking for a young male, blonde hair, blue eyes. Body hair or no body hair? Thick body hair, please. What age? Uh, 10 to 12. Butch or femme? Butch, please. What is your address? I'm at the Houston Marriott Hotel, room 313. Wire me $200 now by credit card and have $100 in cash for the boy. He'll be there in 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. In Houston, I, I give the figure based on, I think, prudent calculations that upwards of 350 boys a year are killed deliberately because of this. Many more die of drug overuse, mal malnutrition, of suicide. The national toll per year is in the thousands. Every year, kids die violently because of this. The kind of individuals involved are down the line, almost in every instance in the cases I've investigated, men who are very powerful, usually very wealthy, and usually administrate control over a large number of people. 
16-year-old boy came to us telling how he'd started as a prostitute at age 12 and now is employed by a large Houston corporation. The corporation pays him from a well-covered slush fund. I'm working right now, you know, like, just, you know, with the corporation. And What's that? How's that work? Well, uh, when their executives or, you know, their business people are in town, uh, they're sent to our apartment, and we entertain them while they're here. Okay, what's that entertainment usually involved? What do they usually demand, or what do they want? Well, it's all kinds of sex and perversions. There's no two alike. I've decided that. Subsequent to the making of this interview, this boy's mutilated body was found. It's closely attached to the major financial, commercial, industrial, educational institutions of our society. It's run by the same people who run those. It's frequented by the same people who occupy management positions in those. It's not the mafia. It's, it's an adjunct of clean business. It's serving the most respectable people we have in our society, the people who uh, are the elite. The best information I have is, is that these kids die. They waste away, they kill themselves, somebody kills them, that's it. And we're talking about over half. Over half of the kids who make their living this way for a period don't survive adolescence. This is without a doubt one of my least favorite topics to talk about. But it is without a doubt one of the most important things that I think our society should talk about and learn about and be aware of. Any type of of preparation, any type of extra precaution that you can take for your children, I think is, is not excessive. It's not paranoia because this, this is a bigger problem than what we think. Tips for your family to prevent child abductions. My name is Ben and welcome to safety tips. I hope you practice these safety tips because you're going to need to know them. Number one, my family uses a secret code word. If anybody comes to pick me up at school and they don't know the secret code word, then I don't go with them, even if I know them. Number two, my parents tell me to use the buddy system and walk and play in groups because there's safety in numbers. Number three, my parents said if an adult tells me a secret, then I can tell them because they're my friends. Number four, my parents say that if a guy comes up to you or a lady comes up to you and says they're a police officer, then they've got to have a badge, a uniform, and a police car. Number five, my parents taught me the three rules if I ever get in a dangerous situation. Number one, I can say no. Number two, I can run away screaming help. Number three, I'll tell a trusted adult. Number six, when I'm home alone, I keep the doors and windows locked. Thank you, and practice these safety tips, please. Thanks for watching our show tonight. I hope we've given you a whole new awareness of the issue of missing children. You know, something about hearing those 
those safety tips, those suggestions from a child just makes it that much more heart-wrenching, right? Because what had to be told to him in order to justify him knowing all of those safety tips and whatnot? I know it's for a show, but that was that's a hell of a way to get someone's attention. That's actually from the early 90s, um, but still relevant today in a lot of ways. But guys, I hope I haven't uh, scared the shit out of you in this episode. Um, but I just, I thought this was a strange phenomenon there in the Northern California, East Bay. And I know California has had its share of uh, serial killers and crime and serial rapists and things like that. Um, but I wanted to bring attention to these these four girls in particular. And I just fell in with this Timothy Bender. I just, um, I've heard it pronounced both ways, uh, Bender and Binder. I noticed Lauren said Binder in the synopsis, but whatever is here or there, it's really not that important. If you search his name, you'll find it. Um, if you search East Bay, missing East Bay girls, there's pictures of uh, Bender all over the place. His van, the letters that I read to you, all of it, to me, it just seems too coincidental. The grave, the the dogs sniffing, um, all of that. It just seems too. It just seems too coincidental. And I think with with such a travesty as all of these children going missing and all this, it just irks me that someone else, someone who participates in this, or who does this, is still out there walking around. Uh, whether it's Bender or whether it's someone else. Um, someone, someone took these girls and it's very likely, very likely it's, it's the same suspect. In my opinion, these girls all lived very close to interstate 80 there, which would have been, which as we said before with the scent dogs, they can't, they can't take the dogs on the interstate. They can't track on the interstate. And if you just live a few minutes from the interstate, it's, it's very difficult to find someone once they hit that road but guys i appreciate you listening that's that's the story of uh the missing east bay girls and there's been there's been a lot since and you can really go down a tangled web with this uh through reddit through youtube uh google however you want to go there all all the way up until now there there's there's a lot of strange disappearances in that area uh, these were just a few that I thought were more connected, uh, mainly by Timothy Bender um, and, and a few other things, just being so close to I-80. And I thought that these girls deserved the attention. They'd kind of seem like they were forgotten to me. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it jumped around with different victims and things like that. I hope it wasn't too hard to follow. Um, if you guys did enjoy this episode please rate and review the show. It's a great way to help the show. It's um, just, you can go on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen and just click five stars or, or leave a review. And uh, I'll give you a shout out on the next show. Another great way to support the show is go to patreon.com slash S and you podcast. And you can make a monthly pledge to the show there and get extra content um, as well as early released uh, regular episodes. 
So the early release episodes are usually on Thursdays. And then the free platform will get that episode on the following Monday. There's also other shows that I do on there. I do a show called The Palette Cleanser. So when you listen to, uh, you know, dark or sad stuff like this entire episode, you can go on there and kind of clear your mind. Um, so you can sleep at night and, you know, think happy thoughts again. I'm also going to be doing um, some more video posts. I posted the first video post today. Uh, what is today? Today is Wednesday, May 6th. So if you are a patron of Strange and Unexplained and you have not seen the video, I did a little video of my recording setup, uh, some of the resources I use, some of the things I use to make music and produce the show, as well as made some announcements about another tier that I'll be adding to Strange and Unexplained, which would be a $5 tier. It will come with a exclusive Strange and Unexplained sticker, and you'll have access to everything visual that I put on Patreon. So whether it be artwork or videos or anything like that, um, that will kind of be the ongoing thing for the $5 tier as well. Of course, you'll get access to everything else as well. Uh, the palette cleanser, early release, everything. So that's patreon.com slash SNU podcast. Now, if you already have the Patreon app, you have to search strange and unexplained. Strange and symbol unexplained. I know it's a lot to type. I didn't think out the name. Okay, it's a it's a bitch to search for. I realize that. I'm sorry. Um, but I thought the name was cool and it rhymes, kinda. So here we are, right? This train's already rolling. People will find it if they really want to. Um, you can also find us on social media at S and U Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. If you guys could go give those a like, I would appreciate it very much. It helps spread the word. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, if you have to, first tell your family what a podcast is, like me. It's <laughs> it's normal. Uh, yeah, whatever you guys got to do to spread the show, I appreciate it very, very much. And um, if you like the conversational style show as well, please check out True Crime Guys if you haven't. Uh, that's my that's our first show. When I say our, I say me and Lauren, who did Lauren's synopsis. That's the show we started in 2016, and uh, it's still going strong. We release on a weekly basis. Every Monday, we release episodes on True Crime Guys. And once a month, we do an exclusive Patreon episode that you can only get if you are a patron member of True Crime Guys. That's patreon.com slash Guys. And again, for SNU, it's patreon.com slash podcast. All right, guys, is that enough rambling? I'm so sorry. Let's get to some reviews. Some reviewers, rather. Okay, let's see what we got here. We got J Gloveless, or maybe JG Loveless. I like it either way. Said five stars, great stories. Thank you very much. Uh, Cassandra, Florida, five stars. Thank you for putting out content. True crime haunts me, but you are so calming and insightful. I'm so grateful for your work. Oh, thank you, Cassandra. And Blue Persuasion said, amazing, totally loving the new podcast, completely hooked, fire emojis. Yes, just put fire emojis. That's what, that's what we tell people on True Crime Guys. You know, if you don't want to type anything, just put fire emojis, okay? <laughs> There's one other group of people I want to shout out, and that is my beloved patrons, 
the people that have already joined patreon.com slash SNU. And I would like to give them a shout at this time for their monthly donations. Okay, so I would like to thank Jen Bush, Raul Marquez, Kyle W. Knapp, and Cassandra. Thank you guys for signing up within uh, the last week. I'm trying to stay up on these. Guys, I, that means the world to me. Patreon is the number one way to help the podcast. Again, if you can't afford the monthly payment, that's fine, or the monthly donation, rather, then you can you can leave a review to help the show download or just tell people, tell your friends, share us on social media. Um, it reminds me, if you guys have a case suggestion or would like to reach out to me via social media, please do, at SNU Podcast. You can message me on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, or at Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Also, if you're all if you're a True Crime Guys listener, I have linked uh, SNU to most of the True Crime Guys platforms. So if you like, for instance, in the um, title or in the bio on the Instagram page of True Crime Guys, there's a link to SNU there, and also a highlight story there on True Crime Guys as well. All right, so that's it, guys. Finally, I know I've said that like a million times, but I'm for real this time. So guys, I will see you next week with a new Strange and Unexplained Patreon members. Be on the lookout for a new palate cleanser this week, as well as the unveil of the new $5 tier. Thank you guys for listening. And remember, be strange, just don't be a stranger. <laughs>